Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to On the Sporting Couch, a psychological profile of some of our most loved sports stars. And we've brought the couch on the road today. Welcome to Reading Football Club to meet two footballers who are close friends and part of one of the most extraordinary stories of international football in recent years. I'm Gary Bloom, a sports psychotherapist, and that means I work with elite sportsmen and women who are struggling, or have struggled, to come to terms with the pressures of being in the spotlight. As a lookout over Reading Football Club, I can see 26,000 unoccupied seats on a bright, sunny day. Reading Football Club is the venue for today's sporting couch. Meet Simon Church and Dave Cottrell, two footballers who had highly successful careers, culminating in being part of the Welsh squad who reached the semi-finals of the European Championships in 2016. Wales have surely pulled it off! You can hear the dragon roaring right across Europe! Wales are 3-1 up with five minutes to go! The semi-final is within touching distance now! But both footballers, as we'll hear, had dark days. And we'll be hearing what the effects of anxiety, depression and injuries have on today's professional footballers. Simon, can I, can I start with you? When was the first time you met David, who's sitting alongside me? Um, the first time I met David was, was at the race course at, at Wrexham. Um, we were meeting up for the under-21s squad. And I've pulled up in the car park in my uh, banged-up Fiat Punto. And he's whizzed past me and pulled up next to me in his Aston Martin got out of the car, looked at it and laughed and said, what is that? I said, I'm David. <laughs> I'm Churchy. Nice to meet you, mate. <laughs> so success never went to your head from the early days? No, I didn't. <laughs> to be fair, I thought um, it was just some random fan pulling up in a banger punto, but no, he, he, he was a good guy. And I thought, and we hit her off straight away, to be fair. We've, we've become like close friends ever since. Okay, chaps, we've uh, moved the couch into one of the exec boxes here at Reading. Let's go and get started for another edition of On the Sporting Couch with footballers Simon Church, David Cottrell and me, psychotherapist Gary Bloom. You're both out of the game now. What is it like looking back as... As in your careers as professional footballers, what's your immediate emotional landscape? Is it pride? Is it sadness? Is it regret? Start with you, Simon. For me, it's probably it's probably a bit of, a bit of sadness, a bit of regret, just because of the way it's ended. It's it's been taken out of my hands, but I mean, I've had long enough period to to digest what's happened and to look back. I don't think I've ever done that over my career. Look back and and see what I've achieved and where I started and what where I got to. I mean, um, now that I'm at the stage where I've gotten over the the, the injury and retiring and having to do that, um, I look back with you know real fond memories of of you know I just remember the good times. I've actually not even looked back over my career until I I did an, um, some commentary work the other, the other day and. A guy brought this Welsh sticker book to me to sign these things. I thought, looking back, and that was the first time I actually thought, you know, I've actually achieved something. I managed to play for Wales and have a decent enough career. But other than that, I look back and um, 
I kind of entered on my terms without being told to end about so in, in obviously Simon's case he got told he had to retire because his hips weren't allowed him to move anymore were they? Why are you laughing at that? <laughs> I just remember you trying to move a star sixes the other week not good was it my friend? Do you wish David it would have been the same for you or are you how do you feel about the reasons that you had to, to, to stop your career? I think I, I'm kind of glad that I ended on my terms uh, mentally I was just drained from the game and just mentally just drained with the politics to be honest involved in football I just came to a point where I didn't want to play anymore and I, and it's a big world out there everyone in football if they're wrapped in like kind of a, not everyone um, but a lot are just wrapped in that bubble they think that football is going to be there for you, your entire life and it's not when you retire early 30s 35 wherever it may be you still have to live the rest of your life then as you know you spend longer outside of football than you are in football um, so you just need to be prepared and I, and I was happy I didn't want to drop down the leagues and didn't want to do that way because I didn't want to be put my family through that same instance of right in a year's time what are we going to do we're going to move and be in the same situation so it was kind of just looking for the, the best future ahead really do you, do, you, do you wish you'd have retired for different reasons? yeah I think with me I always had a hip issue um, I, I knew it was going to eventually be the get the better of me um, but I didn't think it would be this early did I enjoy playing football at the time I retired? No, I, I probably stopped. We would always we would always ring each other up and message each other. Actually, we'd go, oh, I hated that today. Or oh, we hate training and and me and Church we were always kind of like we'd speak on a regular basis of kind of like oh when we retire this is what we want to do and and so so on and and we were kind of at the time similar stage that we actually hated football we'd always ring each other up and say well this is what we hate about football this is who we hate or whatever it might be hate might be a strong word but what we didn't like uh, like about the game and and we would have regular discussions about it I think it's hard for people not involved in football who love football to hear players that have played at a good level to turn around and say we don't enjoy playing football you see there's a bit of me that gets quite cross listening to this because I'd have given anything to be a professional footballer and there will be thousands and thousands of people listening to your words who will probably feel similar emotions and there will be people who say well you earn good money out of the game what's the problem? This this is what always irritates me about that question is because the money side of things is not the be all and end all the way you get so for example at clubs when I was in certain clubs I was getting told to train on my own because the chairman, the owners or the managers didn't want you to be in, in, at that football club so they separate you from the first team, make you train on your own. No other working environment would, would that happen or be allowed to happen. They don't ask you how you are as a person, just go and train on your own. So just get out of the way and make my life easier as a manager and not treat you as a, as a person. I, th- I think the, the big thing about being a professional footballer from a young age your, your dedication, your hard work, you've got a goal, you want to be a professional footballer. When you reach that goal, maintaining that is the pressure, the anxiety, the stress, the also will to succeed, you know, is, is massive. But also, you're treated, I think you're treated like a child. You're, not, you're told when to eat, you're told when to sleep, you're told where to be, you're told where not to be, you have to do this, you have to do that. And if you don't do it, you're fined, you're taken out of yeah. the team. You're told to train separately. I had that. I got my number taken away from me. I was told to train by myself. You're not allowed to go home and see your family. This is more important. I'm not allowed to go to a wedding. Some players have missed the the birth of their of their, their children. children. You're not. You just get treated like a child. I I got married in the the summer, um, which was two years ago. So I went away on international duty with Wales. And normally the rule is is that you can have extra time off for you to have a little bit of a down period to go and rest, basically, to let your body rest. Um, even though the club knew that I wasn't reporting, they tried to fine me a week's wages because I was on my honeymoon at that time. So I, I emailed them back on my honeymoon. And I said, look, if you want to go down that route, then I'm going to contact the necessary people to make sure that this doesn't happen. And then they came back and said, oh, OK, this is a warning you need to the manager when you get back. So I went in to see the manager at that time. And um, he's like, I've never heard anything like this. So and I said, well, I've gone on international duty. This is the only time I could get married. Um, so anyway, he stripped me of my squad number at that time, gave me a, a total different number, made me train on my own. The manager? Yeah, the manager did. And then I went to see him. I said, look, that's fair enough. You want me to make, make me train on my own? That's fine. But don't be bringing me at silly hours because, you know, we, we have a life and we have families also and kids to see. 
literally three days later, he put me in the starting eleven to start a championship match after making me train on my own, change my squad number, and trying to find me a week's wager for turning up late. You know, the, even when these managers got the sack, they called me up and apologised because they were they were putting me on the starting line of the name um, ready for the Saturday. And he said the chairman would just come in and just put a whole diff- new team up. So that's the kind of issues that you're battling in football. Simon, I'm going to ask you this this one to you. Do you think football lags behind its duty of care to its players as opposed to other sports like cricket and rugby? Definitely, definitely. I don't think there is duty of care at all. From from my experience, it might be different in, in other places. From my experience, I've, I've had the same as, as David. I mean, even the way I was, treat, I was treated at probably four or five clubs, I was made to eat, eat by myself. I'm not allowed to eat with the first team because I'm injured. But why is this? Why would football treat its greatest commodity, its players, with such emotional abandon? I don't get it. This is the, only, the only thing you can do as a football club is win matches and go up the table and blah, blah, blah. Why would you treat you the most important people at your football club th- like that? I think that's the weirdest. This is what I would say. Obviously, since coming out about talking about mental health, I find it really bizarre that football clubs are not getting... You know the right people in place, like you know psychologists or, or the team in place for, to provide the best care for their players, because you're investing all this time to get a, someone to help them mentally or any troubles that they might need someone to talk to. Invest in that rather because in the long term that's going to benefit you because you could eventually sell these players on for millions and millions of pounds. So why not invest a small amount of money to provide the best player care for them? Why why wouldn't you? I'm, I'm, you've you've played the game professionally, both of you. Why not decide? You know what we're going to do without one extra squad player. You're going to use that money, that packet of money, bringing in psychologists or welfare people or why why wouldn't you do that? Because they don't care. They don't care about players. All they care about is you. Doing exactly what they want on a, on a Saturday. I mean, f- I, I take my personal experience. I went and saw a psychologist outside of football um, off my own back because I felt, you know, I got recommended by a few players who, who, you know, outsourced that themselves. And I felt that was a massive help and a massive um, thing for my career and, and focusing and, you know, letting things out as well. Because um, you had a really tough background, Simon, that you, you, your dad uh, died when you were relatively young your mum's not well as well that that must have had a huge impact on you yeah it was a, it was a massive impact i think from the age of 16 with all the you know the important times of getting into the youth team getting my professional contract and then obviously bursting on the scene and trying to stay in the first team it all had a an impact when i came home i tried not to let it affect me around the training ground and you know as soon as a, a negative thing happens in in football you miss a chance or you have a bad game you go home and it's just it's just uh, it's on a big scale. We go home and you feel like you know I, I haven't really got anyone to talk to about it. And you find yourself in this huge game that you're playing in front of the the television cameras against Newcastle. Your dad's very very poorly. Yeah, I had um, my dad was suffering with cancer, uh, terminal cancer, um, and I can remember getting the coach up to to Newcastle. We were playing Newcastle away on Sky on the Sunday, and I was in the hotel room on the Saturday night, and my brother called me and said. Look, Dad, Dad's on his last legs. He's he's going to pass away in a couple of you know a couple of days. They've given us him a couple of days, and you know I spent the whole night crying. Uh, we had an early kick off. I think it was a midday kick off. Didn't tell anyone. Why? I felt like I didn't want to. I knew I was playing. I felt like if I went to someone and told, it might affect my career. Might I was only twenty years old at the time. Might affect my you know starting place. It might affect what the what the people thought of me vividly remember I gave the ball away and I looked up and at St James's Park it's massive and I thought I've just got I've just got to get through this I can remember I, I come off the pitch and I looked at my phone after the game you know I had loads of people saying oh you didn't play well there and all this kind of stuff and in the end when I got home I, br- I broke down and then a couple of days later my dad passed away and it was it was a tough time I was 20 years old I had two younger brothers obviously my mum was was very ill at the time as well and it was something I couldn't I felt like I couldn't speak openly with I was playing I was doing well in my career I didn't want that to be affected You're listening to On the Sporting Couch on Talk Sport. I'm joined at Reading Football Club by Simon Church and David Cottrell talking about their careers and the stresses and strains. David, I'd like to just look at your background. 
and and your relationship with your dad and how important he was to you in those early days of you trying to make it as a player? Yeah, well, he, he was a huge part of me making as a professional because he would always practice with me, take time out when he would finish work. He would always drive me to Bristol for you know two or three times a week and then and follow my career. And he was always a great support to me. Um, it's kind of like an old school upbringing, though, when it was. You know, I wasn't allowed to go out and play with my mates as much. If I come home late, who kind of right? Where have you been? And you know, focus more on football and uh, and just kind of been a, that kind of focus. Where I look back, you know, when I when I see my son now, who's eleven years of age, and I'm letting him do what he's doing. <laughs> you know, that wouldn't be allowed to. You know, what well, my dad wouldn't allow that to happen for sure with me. The youngest of four was that a big influence on the family? Because the, the young ones are often babied more than the the older ones. I think so, but because I think my parents had trouble with my two sisters and my, and my brother. Um, so you're the golden child? They would say I'm the golden child, but I also feel like I've probably had the most pressure put on me because, so to speak, I was the last chance to kind of do something because, you know, they were just typical teenagers and, and getting into trouble and all that sort of thing. So it's kind of... They'll think that I'm the golden child, but it was a lot more pressure. If, if they dealt with the pressure that I, I have from an early age, then they would understand why. Did you enjoy that pressure? Yeah, because I was in the first team of, from of Bristol City at the age of 16. Is what we all wanted to do. We all wanted to be footballers, and you know, I, I was living the dream, so to speak, at that age. And I love that sort of pressure, which it didn't affect me. The question I want to ask is, do you think that success came too young for you? No, I felt... I felt ready. The only thing that I would maybe want is I had parents who supported me, but maybe a lot of agents in the world. I was probably with one of the the biggest agencies out there at that time, and it's kind of you're on like a conveyor belt. As long as you're convenient for them to make some money, they'll be there for you. But then when you're not making them money, they'll just throw you down. How soon were you aware of that? When I got my move to Wigan from Bristol City, when I think when agents are involved and you know, they take you that to get you that move, and then they have their commission or whatever it might be. That's when that's all the a lot of the agency in this game. Unfortunately, that's all they're out for. I'm picking up a bit of crossness. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because I can see the crossness coming because out, of you, I'd... and I think that that grin is is there to mask your irritation and the fact that you were a commodity. I think not not necessarily me, because you know I I don't really have that much bitterness towards that side of thing but what really irritates me is that all these younger kids coming through now and agents are still allowed to do what they want whenever they want and they're not looking out at the best players interests at heart all they want to do is make a few quid I think it's down to the player care as well yes we can have a go at you know football clubs and, and this and that but you have an agent he should be looking after your best interest at heart you're you're an asset to him as well so you should still provide them the best care as possible i've had experiences with agents where they've had both myself and the club's interests at best i mean as a player and you're paying his wage and he's he's making money off you you'd want him to solely look after your best interests and put the club his relationship with the club in doubt if it means that you're he's doing right by you as a player but I, I think there's too many agents at the minute who are just like David said there for when your next deal's about I'll help, I'll help you get a great deal we'll get a great deal this kind of thing but their relationships with the clubs are just as important as the relationship with a player which which as an agent you don't as a player you don't want so, so you're talking about a conflict of interest basically de- yeah definitely definitely I think I think it's the same situation where when I was at one club before and and the agency of that I was signed to, three of the, three of us were at the same agency, and we're, we're all of us were wingers. So, as an agent, you must be thinking one of the, my players is not going to play. So, why would you then take them all to the same club? It makes no sense. And I met an agent before; it was my agent from that um, agency. I met him for three hours this one time, and he was dealing with a problem with um, another footballer, and they were a celebrity couple; they were having a divorce, and. I'm not joking. You, I was there for three hours. He probably spent five minutes talking to me about my career. He was on the phone to sorting his the other players' problems out. When I just thought, I'm just a number, really, because this guy was a bigger fish than me. I was just kind of, you know, just put to the bottom of the pile, and that's when I made my decision to leave that agency. When was the first time that you realised that anxiety could be a problem and it might affect your footballing career? 
I'd probably get anxious more t- later in in my career. Um, I knew that I would suffer from an early age with, you know, mental health problems from the age of thirteen. So, sh- so these problems start presenting themselves as young as thirteen. Yeah. In what way did they present themselves? I just always I'd be too hard on myself. I, I even when I I'd practice on my own, and you know if I wouldn't do things the right the right way, I you know I'd go in my bedroom just get like stud boots or whatever and just whack them against my my shins just like i don't know it's like kind of like an anger issue of just trying to you know want to better myself so what you're describing is a form of self-harm is that right yeah for sure because i wanted to i'd always be too harsh on myself and you know be times when i I would be in my bedroom and, and people always think that i'm a bubbly character which i am and um, I don't want people to stop having banter with me, but, you know, there are times where, you you know, I, when I'm on my own, I'm overthinking stuff. You know, I'm definitely an overthinker and, and do go into dark places at times. So we call that thinking about thinking. Yeah, basically. You recognise yeah. that. So who was the person who was most critical of you growing up about the quality of football that you were about to become? In in the early days, I was always just, you know, my dad would push me to to the limits to be a professional footballer. But is that what the what was going on there at thirteen? Um, no, because he was like the most loving person ever. Um, was it a coach? Was it somebody who who you had to impress? No, I was just I just wanted to impress myself to just get myself. I, I was brought up in I was brought up in on a council estate. I was used to people just being not necessarily, you know, making. Everyone always used to say when I was in school, you know, friends or wherever it might be, or you, you know, you won't make it as a footballer. No one makes it from around these areas. So it's kind of they're, they're the voices that'll be in my mind thinking you are going to make this and no one's going to be in my stand in my way. But that sounds a really tough place to be. Thirteen years old, you're trying to make it as a player, and you have these doubts swirling around you, and yet the pressure's on you because you have a chance of making it. I think the pressure's always on any any younger footballer who wants to make it. But it was I, I didn't have any doubts about making it as a footballer. I know that sounds cocky or anything, but I knew what I wanted to do and nothing was going to stop me and for me to get to that place. I look at like my brother, for example. He he was with the, he was at Watford, um, Wickham Wanderers. Stephen or Matthew? Stephen. Mm-hmm. He was at Wickham uh, up to the age of 15, 16. He got released because he was too small, fell out of love with the game. And you see so many players that have come through trying to make that next step and they get pushed away. It's such a ruthless game, football. Can I just interrupt you? This is what I'm, I mean about the player kit. There's nothing in place to help these kids along the way. So mentally they must be drained because they've been rejected and there's nothing to back themselves up to go on into another career. So when you when you get rejected as a, as a professional younger player, so to speak, who's to say you haven't got great attributes to go into another sport, but they just write, you're a footballer, you've got nothing else to offer us, see you later. Well, that's 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 the thing. At that age, you've still got time to go and get over it, get, get into something else. It's the ones that are falling out of the game at 21, 22, 23, 31, 33, 35. What do you do then? Where's the support? That's that's the biggest issue for, for us, especially a lot of people that we're friends with or speaking to now. What are you actually going to do after football? Because you're going you're gonna to need to do something. Yeah. Which takes me nicely onto your career, Simon, because you decide right early on whilst you're a professional footballer, to plan for the future. The, the, the technical name is transitioning out of the game into another uh, industry. And you, you got that from the get-go, didn't you? Yeah, to be honest, uh, what it was, was I, I had great advice when I was 20 years old. I, instead of buying a, buying a penthouse, I bought a, I bought a house that needed refurbishment, a repossession house, and I got a buzz for refurbing it and, and doing that. That was my... Um, my dad who gave me that advice and I got a buzz for it so I hadn't immediately had an interest in property from the age of 20 um, I was always interested in in business and, and other things outside I'd read a lot you know <laughs> when I'd read a lot of players would take take the mickey basically just because it's, it's unheard of isn't it but yeah back then you never really used to see people reading things now you see more the younger players are you know they're reading books on the coach which is good whereas before you know, just get banded off when you you probably yeah. get your book launched out the window or something. <laughs> but again, it was like it, it was a, like a release for me because as soon as I had kids, I had my first, I had Robin at, at 24. I thought, Do you know what, this isn't going to last forever. I'm not going to be able to earn this money forever. I'm going to have to look at doing something else. Which I don't know what it was. It was something inside me. I didn't get any advice. It was just an interest that I wanted to pursue. Um, but yeah, I, I've had to retire. 
I've had to retire, but luckily I've had things in place for, for me to make that transition quite quickly. Not not taking it away from the fact that it was tough and it took me a while to get over. Do you, what, so you miss playing? I, I miss being in football day to day, I do. Purely, what I do miss is going into the changing room. This is On the Sporting Couch, a programme about good mental health in sport. Joining us today, two former Welsh internationals, Dave Cottrell and Simon Church. David, I'd like to just change gear um, and talk about some of your darkest times when you start drinking to try offset some of the uh, effects of your depression and anxiety. Tell us about those times. Yeah, probably I was at Doncaster, which was quite strange because that was a probably when we won the league in League One, which I didn't really want to go down to League One, no disrespect to that time, because I felt like I was good enough still to be playing in the Championship, if not above. That's, mm. what I, you know, that's what I thought, really, in my head. But I had to go. I played for Doncaster because Dean Saunders brought me there and just to find my love for the game again. Um, that's when my first marriage was um, taking its toll. I had enough, really, in the sense of I wasn't happy um, with my private life. And then I just go out perform on a Saturday wherever it might be and then just go out and just get drunk and just be in a you know a crazy stage of, of life really how long did that drinking period go on for well, all that season with Doncaster well for two seasons I was with Doncaster and then when I went to Birmingham you know I was single then it just continued just to drink I was drinking non-stop drinking is often the symptoms of something much deeper would you say that's true with you yeah for sure I would but I was drinking so much that no one would know any different. I, you know, I was drinking like three bottles of red wine a night. And my dad's a, a painter and decorator. And one one time when I was in my place in Cardiff, I decided to jump on a ladder and start painting my my place out myself. And my dad came round the next day and he's like, "Who's painted this house?" And I was just like, just kept quiet. He said, "You need you need to get a refund or sack him or whatever you're doing because it was such a." <laughs> and I looked and I literally missed so much of the walls. And I'm like, wow. And then I'd literally just go to training and just act normal. But I think the manager at the time, which was Gary Rout and his, his staff there, they, I think they knew and they knew how to manage me. How did you manage to cut down on the drinking? Only, it's probably been only recently since I've, just before I started, before I came out and spoke about mental health, my wife was, you know, talking to me about, you know, you need to stop drinking because you're doing stupid things, you know, and I've had, like, a knife and a corkscrew to my throat and trying to, you know, do that after, like, a night out or a drinking session. So you'd threaten somebody with a knife? No, I'd, put, I'd have it around my own neck. I wouldn't threaten anyone else. So you were threatening to self-harm? Yeah. And I'd try and... And sometimes I'd try and, you know, stick a knife in my stomach, whatever, but I'd be so drunk I'd just miss and just collapse on the floor and go to sleep. What, Wait. what were you trying to do? Were you trying to take your own life? Yeah. At that time, I was. I really didn't get, you know, care. But I know when you're in that mental stage of that, is that you don't, even though you have a beautiful wife and beautiful kids, you don't really think of anything else. But it's kind of like a selfish thing. You just think about. You just want to, you know, basically not be here anymore. I was just, just in like a dark place. I didn't. I just wasn't happy anymore. I just, I was just so angry with things. I felt like I was. I was coming to a point where I was. It would be a lot easier if I wasn't around rather than being there with those sort of issues. Who was that anger directed towards? My my wife now, which who's, who's been there through thick and thin there for me, and she's given me the the best support ever. I think I think a lot happened at such a young age for me. I, divorce didn't help my situation when I was young. I had a divorce when I was twenty five. Um, and not being able to see my kids. It was just like a number of things. When I, I suffered with mental health for a long period of time, I didn't tell everyone. I just let every, everything build up. So it was probably like a number of things that I was so angry at. But you've said in this interview, it starts at 13 when you're whacking your studs against your, mm. against your shin. And then it progresses and progresses and progresses, David, to a point where you're holding a knife to your own thro mm. throat. That, to me, is the same material. Mm. Had it never occurred to you? It's the same stuff? Um, no, I think I just... Look, when I look back that, I always just think, at that age, I just had, like, anger issues with, like, certain things. But oh, you just said you had anger issues again, mm. haven't you? They haven't got away. No, no. But now I deal with them better. Um, I don't I don't get... I wouldn't be putting a knife to my throat now or doing those self-harming things now, if that, if that makes sense. You know, when you suffer with mental health, 
a lot of your problems come through your upbringing of what certain things happen and this and that. Um, you know, I've had situations where, in family-wise, it's not the normal upbringing, uh, but that's not the... I wouldn't say that's part of my anger issues, I think. What wasn't normal? I think probably... I think when you're a younger kid, when you're not having a childhood to actually play with your play with your mates and things, and you you know you're focused on obviously being a footballer, but you need to have that fun as well. I think my fun got taken out as a childhood in terms of like being with friends and having like a normal life in school because you know I was, even from like an early age I was getting taken out of school to go and play at Bristol City's up an age group, and I wasn't being allowed to be around my friends. Um, so in some respects, football destroys you and makes you. Of course. Is that a story that you would recognise, Simon? Definitely. I mean, the, the sacrifices you have to make, even, even at such a young age, where you are, you're, you're not going out with your friends on a Friday or a Thursday, even at a young age where you're, you're missing out birthday parties, you're missing school because you, you need to go to training, yeah. you need to get to training. Um, it's, it's quite common. What's it like being away from home and away trips and being away on international duty and uh, your fascination with Lego? With the with the Lego side of things, that was what I would do to take my mind off things and my alone time, and it kind of helped me with my mental health. I always I had like a Lego room in my house always, and I just lock myself away and just build Lego and take my mind off off you know deeper thoughts, so to speak. I wonder if it has a flavour of obsessive compulsive disorder. Do you think that's true? <sighs> probably, yeah. I've probably got all sorts going on. <laughs> but um, and then obviously with the away with the away situation. Um, Sometimes I'd like away matches in, for with clubs because it would only is only one night, and when you have kids, as anyone knows, sometimes you, it's nice to even though you love them more than life, you it's nice to have that little bit of a breather now and again to have a good night's sleep. So, so that's what I'd use it for. But on international duty, I found it really really difficult, especially the Euros because you go in there. And what Simon said earlier when he managed to play in the semi-finals and I didn't even play in the tournament, which I felt I at that time I was on good form I, I felt like I should have at least had a few minutes on the pitch to get you know tournament experience or whatever I found that really tough because you're going you're going away for six to eight weeks and you're in your room on your own and it's a lot of time you, you're training every day for a whole week you're not playing at the end of it then you're going back to your room being on your own I, I felt very lonely really see we wouldn't have known at the time how bad you were struggling with it mm. we wouldn't have known because he was always laughing and joking he was loud he was always straight to, to hammer someone if they're wearing something or do you think and you've, you've worked with so many footballers at the various clubs you've been at do you think it's often the the loudest ones who are struggling the most um you just i don't think you know i don't, I don't think, think you, you know no, i don't think you know because i had i had a few people who well footballers message me on a regular basis saying they're, they're struggling with mental health and one of my friends actually um won the premier league and leading up to that he was suffering you know quite badly he said and he was he's not really really loud at all so it's it's really hard to gauge who is actually struggling who's not in the football terms but when i go into a dressing room i can tell who's who's suffering or who's got you know a few inner demons or issues going on let's go back to the euros in 2016, when the Welsh national squad reached the semi-finals of the competition. From the outside, it looked like everyone's having a fantastic party. Nobody expected you to get that far. What was it like inside the camp, David? Inside the camp was amazing people involved. You know, every member of the playing staff and, you know, the coaching staff. We all got really, really well. We all pushed in the same direction. But personally, that was probably my kind of my darkest times when I was when I was away there. Was there a psychologist assigned to the, the Welsh national team? This is my point when I spoke to the Welsh FA about it. They have they have a doctor who is unbelievable. Like, he's a great guy and he, he's very good at what he does. But he's not... Um, when I've... did I, I tried speaking to him before I came out and spoke about mental health. He's actually not covered in that, that um, side of things. And also you have a sports psychologist, but he's only preparing you to go and perform the best of your abilities on the pitch. So that was my point. So how are you getting us to perform out of the pitch as a human being? So that was my argument. You're going away for six to eight weeks, but you haven't got no one there. And that's where sports psychotherapy and sports psychology are They're different, different things, but in the football world, they think that, right, we've touched that base. We have a psychologist here. They're two different things. Simon? I always love going away with Wales because of the team we had, the people we were with, the staff... 
the manager, the training, everything I enjoy, I love so much. I look forward to going away from Wales as a break from my from my club football. Being there, the way we travelled, you know, the fans following us everywhere, it was a different experience. I sucked it in because I knew I'd, I'd get a minute. And to be fair, he stayed true to his word. Then he, I played in the in the group game, and then I came on in the semi final, which. Is, you know, I should have retired. Yeah, yeah. I should have retired just then, to be honest. You did, didn't you? You didn't play. Well, again. I didn't play. Again, yeah. <laughs> I think we had such a good group, though, yeah, we? Yeah. where we could express ourselves. We knew exactly what we were doing. We could laugh and joke. We could. But that's the only time that I've been on the bench and I've wanted my team to actually win and do really, really well. Because normally, when players when players are on the bench and they have players in their positions, they don't want him to do well, or they want the team to have a, a bad result because they want to play. Ultimately, everyone wants to play week in, week out. But that's the only time that I, I wanted my team to do so well. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan turning a side hustle into a full hustle or even missed open enrollment want more flexibility find out more about united healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones blue nile has something she'll adore need a fast most items can ship overnight plus enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You're listening to On the Sporting Couch. If you're finding life tough, Samaritans is there to listen. Call 24-7 free on 116-123 or visit samaritans.org. I'd just like to bring up the topic of, of the sad case of Gary Speed. Yeah. You've both worked with and the tragic events that led up to the end of his life. What were your relationships with Gary Speed like? I was quite close with him. I mean, at, at the time, we were making the transition where he came in and basically revolutionised the, the Welsh squad, didn't he? he was, as a man-manager, he was, he was brilliant. He would put your arm around you, and especially for us young, young players coming through, he'd help us. You, you know, we'd look up to him and say, he's a, he's a football icon. He's respected, he's a hero, he's had a great career, but also as a person, how he was one-to-one was was amazing he made you feel so comfortable and he made you feel like you would you would do anything for him and you know for what for what happened I can remember I was in the change room I got I got told uh, I was at Reading I got told that it happened I just could not believe that I thought he would be the last person in the world that that would happen to I used to travel in with um Speedo from Manchester to Sheffield United we it was me James B Gary Naismith and Speedo used to travel over together he was always, you know, laughing and joking and, and funny. But sometimes when we used to, you know, bump into each other in the morning, and you know, Beats would joke around and say, "Oh, you got bipolar this morning, Gary." But it wasn't like that. It was just kind of, you know, I'm I'm similar as well. Whereas, like in the morning, sometimes it gets me, a, you know, time to get going. He was kind of like that way. But nothing, you know, what happened, I would never would have thought that. What was your reaction when you heard the news that he he died? Devastated. I was actually on the. I just finished training, I think, with Swansea, and I was driving up towards Cardiff and. Andy King actually called me 
And he said, oh, have you heard the news? I was like, no. And he said, you know, Gary Speed's, um, he's died. And I, then as soon as I got in, I just couldn't believe it. I just sat in front of, obviously, listening to the news for all day. Yeah, I was the same. I was, I was at training. Um, and I think the manager at the time pulled me in and spoke to me about it. It was actually quite quite good good with me about it. Just said, look, this has happened. Um basically talked about it and I couldn't believe it I was in shock I went home we, we spoke to a few players didn't we? we we all couldn't believe what was going on we didn't know how to react why has this happened I think the biggest question was well why why we can't see anything wrong can we what is quite scary I think and I still don't think that we have plans in place to even still help the players yes I think people have probably come back and say you know the PFA are doing things to actually help players but are there definite things in place to help people right now if they actually need them? Um, which, yeah, they can say, oh, we have counsellors, we have this and we have that. But, you know, I think players need that general care on a day-to-day basis to know that someone's going to be there not to go and tell the manager to jeopardise their place in the team, to have that trust in them. And I personally felt that going through to the PFA would not... I always thought it'd still get back to the, you know, my team or whatever it might be just because everything's always into into locking so to speak suppose the PFA ring you up on Monday and say David would like you to oversee an overhaul of our mental health services what would be your recommendations from what you've seen inside football clubs and you've heard going into football clubs now as a mental health ambassador I would get the right people on board who are actually who can give that advice out when people ask me to be to give them advice I can only speak from my Experiences because I'm not in a place to give them the professional help that they might need. Um, so I, I always point them in the, the right directions or to counsellors or to psychologists, whatever they might need to give them the right numbers to actually talk to these players or, or general people, really, in the general public, sorry. Um, I try and educate the, the all the academy players. I would say that's compulsory um, for player care. I would actually have workshops to educate the parents as well because I think a lot of parents are at fault for the, these children with you know mental health issues growing up as well because it, it just don't come out of nowhere. Um, and, and from a younger age as well, I think that some parents, I'm not saying all parents, some parents are actually using their child as kind of like as their pension scheme because they see their their young their they see their son or daughter wherever it might be as a as an asset for them to get out of a hole that they might be in. Gary, you said there's what three or four actively working in clubs at the psychotherapist I I know of. Yeah, so what? Surely it's got to be a duty mm-hmm. of care from the club, not just the the PFA. It's got to be the football club. It's got to be the whole industry because surely that's that's giving support to a player who's only going to produce better on the pitch on a Saturday and giving them the option rather than keeping it in feeling it would affect their situation at the football club the PFA obviously you've got a uh, helpline but players aren't going to ring that up well I would argue that and I'd be interested to hear your views on this that by the time people have accessed a helpline and then they've been allocated a counsellor or therapist somebody like myself to me it's too late Mm. and I think the um I think what you said to me, David, it's prevention rather than cure, which is the surely the way forward. I mean, other other sports have gone down that path. I think it should be. Yeah. I think, as you mentioned earlier, cricketers and, and rugby players they got great things in place. Um, I think football needs to follow suit. Football is is generating way more money than both of those sports combined. But, so why, but why is isn't it? Why isn't it following suit? Why isn't it right at the cutting edge? Why isn't it at the forefront? of global sport saying this has to be done we have a duty of care to our players because the money in football is greater than with the greatest respect the money in rugby and and, and cricket why aren't we at the cutting edge in football it's stuck it's stuck in the dark ages i think they've got the resources they've got the money they've got everything in place to put things in in place for players i think that going back to that as well simon said is that i had like an interview when i first came out about talking about mental health and pfa was a huge thing and i'm not there's great people in the pfa and i'm not doubting that what i'm trying to say is that that a change needs to happen from top to bottom because as simon said we're in the dark ages really where you know time's ticking where you need to get fresher ideas new people in place to implement these plans to go forward because and I think we discussed it the other day, is that I feel that 
we're probably going to wait for another incident or disaster to happen for us to then react rather than being proactive. We should do it now before something, another serious incident that happens, but that's what we always do. I feel like a lot of things are just getting all right. Well, we'll tick that box off without actually doing anything really, really well. I think I think times are changing. Times are changing with football, and football's not keeping up with it. I think you look at the people who are involved and in running these establishments, the people that have been involved in it since 1990. The game is so much different from 1990 yeah. to, to where it is now. It's so much more evolved. There's so much, you know, the social everything, um, and they just—you're right—they need a total overhaul and. and rebranding they need people in they need people uh, supporting it i think they need younger kind of people involved in it we need to yeah need the fresher ideas i just find it very as you said there's a lot of money in in, in football a huge amounts of money and the the pfa should have their own members of staff to actually um afford to have these group of counselors or whatever they need, all the help helplines that these players actually need as a member of the PFA, but they hired councillors from outside of that and they pay someone else to, to do this job. But surely an organisation of that size and being going for so long, they should have a whole team to look after their player care because as players, we you know, get PFA pensions or whatever it might be. So you're doing that for us, but why are you not providing us the, the best help? We, we look to the PFA, don't we, for, for our support. That's our support system. I mean, for example, in my, in my situation, when I was leaving my last club, I had a, a contract dispute and the PFA were brilliant, absolutely brilliant in helping me overcome that, supporting me, tell, uh, giving me advice, reaching out to the club and sorting it out. Since retiring, I haven't been approached by the PFA once and you think being retired through injury you'd like to think you'd get a courtesy phone call to see how you're doing is there anything we can help with can we push you towards how's your your, you know your mental health being how you're coping with it what are your plans for the future nothing not one word I think that's been quite common I think that yeah well I was the same instance where when I retired um I came out about mental health and I thought you know maybe the PFA might get in contact with me about that they didn't that's one thing they didn't do and then also when i re when i retired you would think that okay you had a professional career for 14 15 years even like an email saying oh you know congratulations on a career for 14 15 years nothing again the only time i got approached was after several interviews when i've brought the light to the pfa to actually do a little bit more did they uh, ask oh I'm sorry we didn't get in touch or, or this and that and that was it it's just like a token message to say right another thing this is what I'm saying they've not perfected anything they're just right we've ticked the box we can prove that we've emailed him and that's it same thing for Simon he's he's not received anything since retiring either but if we go to the player for player care and we look to the PFA for that we should you should be at least getting something to say you know congratulations on your career or an email to keep up to date or what you're doing after football not just this is what i mean you, now you're out of the game you're on a conveyor belt and you use as a piece of meat now we look for the fresh new meat coming through so we come to the end of our recording today at reading football club i'd like to ask both of you one question david if you saw somebody now suffering from anxiety and depression and mental health issues inside the game they came to you for some help what, what would you say to them now I always try and tell them to, you know, to cut things out of negative things in life. Th certain things like alcohol was my problem. So if I, I ask them if they were drinking, or, but I point them in the right direction. I've I've given psychologists and counsellors numbers who I recommend, who I think that are good, and I I give them advice that I went through to see if that helps. But I'm not a professional to give them advice. I can only only talk from my experience. So I always just point them in the right directions and. You know, and on that side of things, I always point them away from football because I feel like footballers prefer to be out of that limelight of the football. They want to deal with other people to help them. Simon, what would you say to a player who is thinking about the coming to the end of their career and the whole problem of transitioning into another career? What advice would you give them? Well, I've actually had that quite a few times. I think they've uh, a lot of players have seen me, you know, make the transition, and they're asking me questions: How do I? Where, where do I go? I want to start my own business. I'm interested in this. Where do I go? And some people want to see how I cope with injuries, and you know, there's a lot of players that have reached out to me saying, "I've I've got a similar long-term injury. How did you cope with it? What are your focus?" I always say, you've got to focus on something else. 
you've got to come when you come home you do the right things you eat properly but you have a focus because otherwise your mind just goes nuts doesn't it yeah, i think you just we were saying before you're thinking about thinking and it, it does and it it's a negative place for injury it's a negative place to be in not knowing what your future holds and i think that's that's a, the support that's something that i'm quite passionate about now even if it's just offering a bit of a bit of advice david cultural and simon church many thanks for joining me today on the sporting couch thank you You've been listening to a special edition of On the Sporting Couch, recorded at Reading Football Club. Joining us today have been footballers Simon Church and David Cottrell, two members of the Welsh squad at the 2016 Euros. If you've been affected by any of the issues in today's show, or just want to get in touch, please do so at my Twitter handle, at Bloomers57, and there are some useful links on mental health on our page on the TalkSport website, all the W's, talksport.com forward slash sporting dash couch and if you want to listen to this show again or recommend it to someone else please find it as a podcast google acast on the sporting couch i hope you've enjoyed today's program i'm gary bloom a sports psychotherapist and remember there's no such thing as good health without good mental health goodbye A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.